Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. My name is Julie Babin and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. I am joined today by Dr. Harriet Mercer. And Dr. Harriet Mercer is a researcher associate at the Department of History and Philosophy at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Mercer is currently work, works on the Leverhulme-funded Making Climate History Project, where she is helping to reveal the stories of the diverse range of actors involved in producing climate knowledge over the two last hundred years. She has particular interest in the changing ways atmospheric data has been collected, analyzed, and represented over time. In her PhD thesis, which was funded by a General Sir John Monash scholarship, Dr. Mercer investigated different ways of knowing climate in the 18th and 19th century Australia. In her most recent publication, she examined the impact of gender on the collection and interpretation of atmospheric data. She worked across disciplinary boundaries and welcomed interdisciplinary collaborations. So today we are going to discuss her paper entitled Atmospheric Archives, Gender and Climate Knowledge in Colonial Tasmania, which was published in Environment and History. And in this paper, Dr. Messer confronts the imbalance of historical atmospheric data in and out Hobart Observatory in Tasmania in the early 19th century, but also how gender relations shaped the way atmospheric knowledge was both produced and used by historical actors in colonial Tasmania. Dr. Messer will also be talking about her upcoming book chapter entitled Empire in the 18th Century Origin of the Global Temperature that will be published in a history of global temperature by the Making Climate History team. And in this chapter, Dr. Mercer argued that navigators such as Jim Cook, Voyage, in the late 18th century has a profound influence on the perception of climate by colonialists. All the detail about Dr. Mercer's paper will be available on the description of this podcast. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Dr. Mercer to the IOW podcast, and we are really thrilled to have you with us today and very excited to begin our discussion. To start it off, us off, could you please explain how you became interested in the relation of gender, atmospheric knowledge, and environmental history in a colonial perspective? And following on this question, could you explain to our auditors um, the importance of gender, race, and class in the study of climate history and atmospheric knowledge, and why this factor goes often unconsidered in the literature? Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Julie, for the invitation to join this um, fabulous podcast series and for engaging so thoughtfully with my research. So my interest in the topics that you just mentioned began during my PhD when I set out to research and write about how newcomers tried to understand Australia's climate from about the late 18th century to the mid 19th century. And this is the period when the British colonization of the Australian continent began and was particularly concentrated on, um, but not limited to Australia's Eastern coast. And one of the reasons I was drawn to this topic was because I realized I had a new source base that previous historians had not been able to utilize before. And that was the Australian and New Zealand drought atlas which offers a reconstruction of summer wet and dry periods for the last about 500 years. And this drought atlas came out the year before I started my PhD. 
and it showed just how variable the climate had been during this first period of British colonization. So the atlas is based on information taken from a nearly 200 tree rings and a coral core. And it shows, for example, that the very first colonists arrived during wetter and cooler than average conditions, which within about 18 months of their arrival turned into much hotter and drier than average conditions, which then persisted for some time. Now, we now know that this kind of variability is pretty typical of Australia's climate, especially on the East Coast, which is vulnerable to a range of different climate drivers like the El Nino Southern Oscillation, which is an ocean atmosphere interaction that swings between different phases and can change weather patterns, in fact, all over the world, including North America. So I wanted to, I wanted to know how a group of newcomers traveling from the Northern Hemisphere in the late 18th and early 19th centuries experienced and understood these changes in the atmosphere, which they of course did not yet know were part of larger patterns of variation. But as I started to write my PhD, I realized that while I was focusing on just how variable the atmosphere could be, my other key category of newcomers was actually a very homogenizing one. So on the one hand, the term is useful in its expansiveness, because although the 18th century invasion of Australia was British-led, it was not only British people who landed in Australia in this period. And nor was it only settlers, because while some of the new arrivals did indeed stay and settle, others were sojourners. But on the other hand, the term smoothed over a lot of differences between newcomers. And these were differences which could be based on all kinds of things, from gender and class to occupation and interests. So my PhD actually ended up being about some of the many and various ways different newcomers different peoples tried to understand Australia's climate and how these ways of knowing were shaped by categories such as gender and class. In terms of the importance of these categories, I think a helpful way to think about it is in fact in terms of more contemporary issues. So if we take the example of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it is an institution whose assessment reports are often treated by members of the public as well as policymakers as the authoritative voice on climate change. But it is also an institution that has been criticized since its foundation in 1988 for a lack of diversity amongst its scientists, as well as for a lack of attention to issues beyond the physics of climate change. So until recently, the majority of IPCC authors have been men from the global north, and until recently, the IPCC reports did very little to engage with Indigenous knowledge systems. So if we want to know how powerful institutions like the IPCC came to have this kind of authority and how it came to privilege certain kinds of knowledge over others, I think we need to understand the longer-term ways gender, race, class, and colonialism have all interacted and impacted the making of climatic knowledge. So when my focus shifted to these issues during my PhD, I felt that the impact of these categories on knowledge making were much better researched for other areas of history of science. 
uh, like medicine, for example, than they were for atmospheric knowledge. And I think part of that is because there is a sense in which climate knowledge is so urgent, so important, that bringing a critical lens to its production can at times seem counterproductive. But I think that there is a lot of research coming out now, which is showing how bringing that critical approach can actually be productive of a more equitable kind of climate science. So, for example, Jen Rose Smith, who is an EAC geographer based at the University of Madison, has very powerfully, I think, shown that in the 18th century, there emerged a powerful set of ideas that normalized temperate landscapes and set icy landscapes like the Arctic in constant contrast to what she calls this temperate normativity. So she shows how the legacies of these ideas have lingered well beyond the 18th century into contemporary climate and environmental sciences and have worked to essentialize and even create harmful stereotypes of peoples living in the Arctic. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Mercer. This is quite interesting. Um, I would also like to ask you in your paper, you suggest a three-pronged methodology to tackle the problem of atmospheric archive imbalance to draw a picture in some of the way gender relations have impacted human atmosphere interactions. So could you tell us more about this and uh, methodological tools you have been using, please? Absolutely. These are lovely questions. Um, so the creation of atmospheric archives is something that I'm still thinking a lot about. And this paper is one of my first attempts to work through some of the issues related to the making of these archives. Because something I realized in researching my PhD was that from at least the late 18th century, meteorology became a form of inquiry increasingly conserved with, um, concerned with, and in fact, in the business of creating archives. So in this period, the users of precision instruments like barometers and thermometers were being increasingly pushed to take ever more frequent observations, to record how they were taking those observations and to keep a neat paper trail of those observations for potential future use and consultation. And this has often meant that a very large record was accumulated and safely stored for places where observatories were established or where people were instructed to use precision instruments to record changes in the atmosphere, such as in 19th century Tasmania, the subject of my paper. So today, climate scientists are delighted to find these kinds of records because they can use them to help them reconstruct past weather and better understand the impacts of global warming. But I think that we also have to approach these records with some level of caution and for several reasons. And one of those reasons being that there can be a tendency to assume that, well, because these records are so abundant, are so well preserved, that they reflect the dominant way of knowing climate for the period when they were created. In the case of 19th century Tasmania, I came across a reference to the atmospheric knowledge of indigenous peoples living in the island's northeast. And I realized that we really can't take the colonial atmospheric archive for granted. The challenge, of course, however, is that, and this is what I try to outline in the paper, is that because of the archival impulse of 19th century meteorology, 
the evidence of atmospheric knowledge making is very skewed towards instrument makers and users. So in this paper on Tasmania, I contrast this in terms of the handful of sentences about Indigenous people's knowledge that were recorded in the colonial archives compared to the hundreds of letters and thousands of tabled numbers of British colonists. A historian's instinct, and certainly my own initial instinct, was to follow the more abundant sources because that is where I felt I could gather a clearer, uh, more certain picture of past events. But I realized that to do that would be to privilege a particular way of knowing that didn't necessarily have the power it claimed to have. So to try to circumvent some of the challenges of the unbalanced atmospheric archives, I use this three-pronged methodology that you mentioned, Julie, and it's a methodology that took inspiration from different fields of history that have confronted similar issues. So the first part of this methodology is inspired by historians like Sadia Hartman, who has worked with the challenges of archival imbalances in the context of transatlantic slavery. Hartman's strategy for grappling with the limits of the archive is to openly discuss the silences of the sources and to then fill those silences with speculative arguments that express doubts and possibilities. To an extent, we could say that this is something all historians do, um, because no matter how abundant our evidence, we can never actually precisely reenact the ideas and motivations of our actors. But robust speculation takes this further and makes the process of history making even more transparent. So it offers an open discussion of the steps followed in collecting evidence, connecting dots and making arguments. And it offers an open discussion of the different possibilities left open by the archival silences, which are often processes that tend to otherwise be relegated to the footnotes. The second part of the methodology is the use of contemporary Indigenous peoples' accounts and testimony. So in the paper, I mentioned that one of the risk, risks with this approach is that Indigenous peoples' knowledge is treated as timeless and unchanging across space and time, as if what they knew in the 19th century is the same in the 21st. The risks of this approach are reduced when less focus is placed on trying to fill gaps in the historical record than on trying to draw out the fuller significance of what remains. So in the paper, I drew a lot on the work of the Indigenous elder Patsy Cameron, who has published incredible work on the history of the coastal plains people of northern Tasmania, as well as the work of the astrophysicist and gamma ray woman Kali Noon, to show how oblique references in the colonial archive were part of larger, incredibly sophisticated knowledge systems. Now, the final part of the methodology, the third part, is to read the abundant archival remains alongside the scars rather than in isolation from each other. So here I drew inspiration from the historian Sujit Sivasandram, who in his work on global histories of science has suggested the need for reading sources at a distance from their obvious audiences and readers. So I take the abundant letters and observations produced at the Hobart Observatory, and I read them in conversation with the few sentences we have from colonists about climate knowledge in Tasmania's Northeast. 
These were not sources that were produced with each other as intended audiences, but they were roughly contemporaneous and reading them together brought out points of significance that would have otherwise been easy to overlook. So in sum, this is a long way of saying that the methodology embraces the conjectural mode while being candid about uncertainty, which surrounds the evidence once treated as less significant by the colonial state with other voices, and which reads the abundant archival remains in the context of the scouts. Thank you very much. This is really interesting. And I think the methodological points you make are really interesting as well for uh, climate historians all over the world. And I hope you will engage uh, more discussion in the future. So to jump back to our first question, um, in your work, you argue like gender that is an essential category of analysis for understanding the human atmosphere interactions. And I'm especially interested in that point. Uh, could you tell us more about how uh, indigenous people, especially women and the settlers interrelated it in the 19th century in Tasmania, please? Absolutely. So I use this three-pronged methodology to show that intersecting ideas of gender, race, and class were so much more integral to the way climatic knowledge was produced and used in, in colonial settings like Tasmania than has perhaps yet been fully appreciated. So in the first instance, when we apply this methodology we start to see that the possibilities for climatic knowledge exchange between indigenous peoples and colonists were very different in the island's northeast, in Tasmania's northeast. So in this part of Tasmania, unlike much of the rest of the island in the early 19th century, there were coastal plains women who had occupied the area for at least 8,000 years, living with European settlers who had arrived from the late 18th century to hunt for seals. And the nature of the relations between these indigenous women and settler men meant that some of the women shared their knowledge of local atmospheric variation with their partners. And their knowledge about this variation was moreover likely shaped by the gender divisions of labor amongst Coastal Plains people. So for example, the evidence suggests that some of the Coastal Plains women who live with the sealers shared their knowledge about how to anticipate changes in the weather, such as the onset of warmer weather based on the behavior of different plants and animals. And this was knowledge that may very well have been peculiar to the women because it was linked to tasks deemed women's work, such as mutton bird hunting. If we then read the evidence of these exchanges in conversation with the evidence coming out of the Hobart Observatory in the island's southeast, we also get a picture of how gender-shaped atmospheric knowledge-making there, but in a different way. So the main observer at the Hobart Observatory was a man called Joseph Henry Kay, and he was a naval officer with the British Navy. And given the enormous number of observations that came out of Kay's observatory and which has survived to the present day, it could be easy to assume that he was the authoritative figure on Tasmania's climate in this early to mid 19th century period. And indeed the British 19th century ideal of the robust male instrumental observer would I think also like us to believe this but when I read Kay's letters in conversation with the evidence from the Coastal Plains women, I realized how deeply 
insecure K, in fact, was about his expertise. He was insecure about using the instruments because many of them were very fragile. And if they broke, it could take a year or sometimes even more to receive replacements from London. And he was also very aware about his status as someone from a lower class than many of his supervisors, which meant that any faults with his instruments could easily be interpreted as faults with himself, the instrument user. And he also worried a lot about the utility of his very tedious, monotonous, often hourly work. So at one point, it gets pointed out to Kay that while his rainfall data might be useful for the area near the observatory in this southeastern corner of the island, it offered, in fact, a pretty hopeless representation for Tasmania's northeast because of localized variation in rainfall patterns. So we start to see that despite ideals of the robust male instrumental observer that I mentioned before, the reality was sometimes very different, where men neither felt totally authoritative nor were treated that way. So in Tasmania's southeast, where Kay was stationed, we see that gendered expectations of male expertise were confounded by the material conditions of the distance that separated the Hobart Observatory from England, as well as the patterns of weather that visited Tasmania. And in the island's northeast, by contrast, the evidence suggests that it was the women, especially the coastal plains women, who were treated as the atmospheric experts because of the particular gender relations um, that developed in that part of the island. So for me, these findings really underline the significance of looking both beyond and in different ways at the abundant records of colonial observatories in order to understand the varied nature of 19th century ideas of atmospheric expertise. Thank you very much. Um, you just mentioned the distance between Tasmania and England. So um, to jump on that, uh, according to your research, what problem does the distance uh, between colonies and metropole pose for climate history and also the problem it posed for the creation of climate archives. And now, how can we bridge this gap? Thanks, Julie. These are really, really interesting questions. And it's one that was relevant in Kay's time and in are, in fact, still relevant today. So in Kay's time, this distance between where the instruments were being made and where the instruments were being used, as well as between where the observations were being made and where they were being analyzed, created all kinds of problems. So we have to remember that, as I mentioned before, in Kay's time, it took months for letters to travel between Tasmania and England via ship, and was also a risky journey for these letters and for these instruments, which could get water damaged on the voyage or even destroyed altogether if the ship went down in some of the rough waters around Tasmania and in the strong gales of the Southern Hemisphere's westerly winds. So this all meant that Kay could be using an instrument incorrectly for a year before he received further advice, or that he indeed may be without an instrument for the same amount of time while he waited for replacements. And sometimes to his great frustration, even the replacements arrived damaged or badly broken. So in a sense, this has helped to create an archive of not only instrumental data like temperature records, but also an archive of fallibility and different attempts to manage that 
fallibility. In terms of the instrumental archive that I just mentioned, in case time, the relationship between metropole and colony meant that we're often getting an instrumental archive based on what the metropole, the center, deems worth knowing with less attention to local context. Because you're extracting data from a specific locale and then taking it back to a scientific center for analysis. And this is, in fact, something you still see in the climate sciences and is sometimes referred to as parachute science. So you get researchers, often from the global north, flying into places in the global south, extracting an ice or lake core or something like that that contains climatic information, and then taking that core back to where they came from for analysis. And I think this goes to show how there is an important sense in which climatic archives are still being shaped by these metropole-colony relations of earlier periods. But that said, a lot of scientists are starting to become aware of the power dynamics inherent in this model of data extraction, and there is more and more research being done with a sensitivity to local context and in consultation with a range of local perspectives and knowledges. In Australia, a real leader in this regard is the physical geographer and we're a juryman, Michael Sean Fletcher, who is doing incredible research into past environmental and climatic changes in Australia. So he and his team have, for example, incorporated a variety of knowledges, local perspectives to show that the risk of extreme dry events and catastrophic fires in Australia has increased since the European colonization of the continent. And not simply because of global warming, but also because of the disruption to indigenous people's land management practices. And he's been able to make these insights because of a sensitivity to local context and knowledges. So in this way, I think the question has become less about how do we bridge this gap between center and periphery and more about why is there a gap in the first place? And is it always necessary to separate sites of data collection and analysis by so much space? And what do we gain when we incorporate more localized perspectives? Thank you. This is a very good point for all researcher in different areas and uh, field across the globe. So thank you very much for that. Um, you work also highlight the role and impact of uh, imperial legacy on climate change science. So could you tell us more about the theory of global temperature and how it facilitated and celebrated the imperial expansion and why were navigators like James Cook that you mentioned on your upcoming book chapter in particular very um, so influential in building a theory of global temperature? And finally, how did the observation of navigator embody the sense of themselves uh, in relation to the whole world and probably above the whole world, and how it impacts the knowledge on atmospheric history or the hemispheric temperature in the north and in the south? So these are really big questions. Um, and I'll start by saying a little about global temperature, which is a concept that a lot of listeners are probably pretty familiar with. We certainly hear a lot about it in the media in the form of how much the earth has warmed as a result of humans pumping various greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. 
So we hear, for instance, about how average across land and ocean, the 2021 surface temperature was about one and a half degrees warmer than the 20th century average and nearly 1.9 degrees warmer than the pre-industrial period. And all these calculations of human-induced warming are based on the idea of giving the whole Earth, the whole of the Earth's surface, an average temperature. Our team called Making Climate History asks where this idea came from. And together we're writing a history of this concept of global temperature. I'm working on the early part of the story, um, beginning in the late 18th century. And what I found is that a critical moment in the history of global temperature coincides with the expansion of European empires into the Southern Hemisphere. Of particular importance is the voyages of Captain James Cook, who was instructed by the British government to lead a series of voyages into the Southern Hemisphere in search of lands that could be conquered and claimed as British territories. And Cook's second Southern voyage, when he doesn't actually sight, but he does sail around the Antarctic continent, represents an especially critical moment, I think. Because on that voyage, Cook and his crew gather information which shows that not only is the Southern Hemisphere much more dominated by ocean than the Northern Hemisphere, it's also dominated by a very cold and icy ocean, which wraps the whole way around the world, uninterrupted by any significant landmass in high southern latitudes. And this is what we now know as the Southern Ocean. And these findings led Northern Hemisphere thinkers, especially in places like Britain and France, to start to speculate about whether the Southern Hemisphere is on average colder than the Northern Hemisphere. So there was, to be sure, some speculation about this before Cook, but it was based more on theory than evidence and wasn't particularly widespread. Cook's voyages seemed to provide evidence that the Southern Hemisphere was colder because of the vast amounts of ice he encountered in the Southern Ocean. And it also seemed to provide a new cause for the coldness, which was the extent of ocean in the Southern Hemisphere compared to the Northern and which was thought to conduct heat differently to land. And all of this was learnt by Cook and his crew through, as you said, a very embodied experience of ice and ocean and through an experience of sailing quite literally the whole way around the world in these southern latitudes. And these findings were moreover represented in an outpouring of charts, maps that followed Cook's return to England in the mid-1770s. And a lot of these charts showed the Southern Hemisphere from a polar projection, so sort of looking down at Earth from the South Pole. And this really served to underline the predominance of ocean in the Southern Hemisphere. And some of these charts actually also attempted to show the extent of ice that Cook and his crew met in this part of the world. So in one quite remarkable chart produced by one of Cook's draftsmen, um, who was on board the ship Resolution with Cook, you actually see the tracks of the ship traced in, in a red line on the map, and then the extent of ice spotted from the ship is traced in a blue line. And it's quite an amazing early cartographical representation of climate, but an easy one to miss, I think. And all this helped to promote the idea that whole hemispheres could have a temperature and not just small, smaller regions or towns. 
which was an important step towards conceptualizing the whole globe as having something like an average temperature. But in the late 18th century, it is an idea very much born in a moment of imperial expansion and an imperial mindset of circumnavigating the globe to find other peoples and places to exploit, um, to try to exploit for the benefit of home peoples. And so for all the contemporary utility of the global temperature concept, especially as a means of measuring the extent and potential impacts of human-induced warming, uh, I think it is also important to acknowledge that the very concept of global temperature was born out of the needs and demands of imperialist powers. And this is actually linked to a larger premise of the Making Climate History Project, which is that understanding global warming and creating global warming have, at times, actually been interlinked processes. Thank you. This is really interesting. <laughs> Uh, thank you for um, being, being with us today. To conclude our talk, I uh, was wondering whether you could tell us more about your current and maybe future projects uh, where you work or even personal uh, projects you'd like to develop. Thanks, Julie. Well, yeah, <laughs> I've got a lot of ideas and not a lot of time sometimes it feels. But as I said before, I'm, I'm really interested in developing further this idea of archives. And I have been working on a project um, sort of tentatively called the, the Politics of Archiving Air, especially in settler colonial settings. So I've become increasingly interested in not only um, looking, tr looking for these scarce archival remains that I mentioned earlier, but also asking, well, why exactly did some things get left out of the archive and what kind of political motivations were behind those decisions? So that's something I'm investigating in a particularly Australian settler colonial context. This is really good. I hope you will have a wonderful discussion with the member here at the Indian Ocean World Centre. I think there is so much to learn here and to uh, develop together and build bridge between uh, across fields, across continents is something that uh, we are looking for at the Indian Ocean World Center. So to conclude our, this conclude our talk uh, today, and I would like really to thank you, Dr. Mercer, for discussing your work and projects, uh, giving us your time. And as we said earlier on, all the links of your papers will be added on the description of the podcast. And I really encourage all auditors to have a look at your paper because it is really fascinating. And I would like also to thank Samuel Riemann for organizing and also editing the podcasts. Uh, this is such a great work. And finally, I would like to thank all the listeners, wherever you are, uh, for either downloading or streaming this podcast. And once again, my name is Julie Babin, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership for Praising Risk, Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. There will be no podcast next week as the centre hosts Dr. Andrew Avaska of Concordia University for an in-person talk on Wednesday, October 12th. Please contact the centre for details. The podcast returns the following week with a conversation with Dr. Francisca Fai of the Institut für Ethnologie und Afrika Studien.